So we've seen in the last week um, or so as we've been through these verses that the At that time in verse 1 is referring to the end of chapter 11. We've had uh, in chapter 10 the introduction to the prophecy. Chapter 11, we've had an entire chapter of prophecy that was all future for Daniel, but it's mostly for us history now. He's speaking a lot about the Greek empire in chapter 11. But as he comes to the end of chapter 11, he is talking about a time that is still future to us time that he'd already spoken of in previous prophecy, referring to the 70th week of the 77-year period that he spoke of in chapter 9. And it's at that time, at the end, specifically at the midway point through that 70th week, after the first three and a half years, that Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people, it's at that time that he shall arise. Now, we made reference to that, and we dealt with that last time, so I'm just summarizing here. Just remember, Michael is the, the uh, high archangel who had particular responsibility, and still, as far as we know, has particular responsibility for the great nation of Israel. That while other nations were handed over to other angelic beings, that Michael is given responsibility for Israel. We spoke about that last time. Remember, the angel is talking to Daniel. So the reference to your people that we see here and elsewhere is to Israel. And Michael has responsibility. And though it's going to be uh, a time of trouble, as he says, it is a time where Michael is going to rise up. And that is a military term. And Michael will rise up to protect the Jews because there is going to be such a horrific time of suffering that comes upon them that if he didn't rise up then as Jesus says in Matthew 24 that no one would survive and so it is that this terrible time notice that it's worse than any other time that that nation has suffered that means it'll be worse than the time of the Babylonian captivity it means it'll be worse than the Holocaust which we've uh, seen in more recent years where one third of all living Jews died it's going to be worse than that and in fact we're told by Zechariah and we mentioned this again last time in Zechariah 13 verses 8 and 9 that only one third of all Jews survive as opposed to two thirds at the time of the Holocaust thank goodness that the Lord raises up Michael to defend that third But those who do survive are those whose names are found written in the book. Notice that we have reference to their names in the book here. And we come to this whole context of resurrection, of final resurrection, and names being written in the book. And I read to you just a moment ago from Revelation 20. And what do we see in Revelation 20? A resurrection that is based upon names written in the book. And what is written in that book. Um... There's much confusion over this, this whole issue. We didn't talk about this last time. I don't want to get distracted by it, but suffice to say that like many others, I see there being two distinct books. I see there being the Lamb's Book of Life, which is where our names are written and if we are chosen. Um, but there is also the Book of Life, which I believe contains the list of those who are alive. And it is at the point that 
that they uh, die without Christ, that their names are removed. So I see two different books, and I think that resolves some of the troubles that some see concerning that. Anyway, we, we got through all of that, and we came to verse 2, and we began to speak about that. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. And as we saw last time, that while in the ESV that I'm reading from here seems to imply that there's going to be this moment and there will be a resurrection of both those who are going to be judged positively and those who are judged negatively, that in fact the, the, the Hebrew is a little bit more nuanced than that. It's not quite as... It's not that they're going to happen at the same time, but they are, both, they are both going to be resurrected at some point. We saw in Revelation that there will be a thousand years that separates those two resurrections. Now, what I really wanted to focus on today, um, we spoke about how the resurrection was spoken of elsewhere in Isaiah 26, that the Old Testament saints would be raised um, and what have you, that this was, wasn't brand new doctrine or anything. But where we didn't get to is in verse 3. And it speaks there of the resurrected, specifically those who are resurrected to its everlasting life. It says of them this, And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Now, there's quite a lot of detail here that we need to know. Firstly, notice how those who are saved are spoken of as the wise. This is something that is very much routine, particularly in the Old Testament. We see um, those, many of you were here as we went through the book of James last year, and uh, in the book of James, um, the terminology of the wise being used to speak of the saved is often the case. The book of Proverbs uses this all the time, um, that those who are saved are the ones who refer to as wise. As we know, we're told several times in the Bible that it's the fool who says in his heart that there is no God, and as such, the wise are those who have embraced God, whose eyes have been opened to him, who have received him, and who are saved. And so it is those who are wise amongst them who shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. Now this is very much again Old Testament terminology. But you will remember many of you, uh, Exodus 33 and 34, where Moses is the one who seeks the glory of God. And Moses says to God, show me your glory. Show me your glory. Which at first glance is something very, very greedy. Because there was nobody alive who'd seen the glory of God more than Moses. That the nation of Israel at that time were a nation, um, and, and pardon the English idiom, which may not translate so well over here, um, were a nation of curtain twitchers. Do you have, do you have that expression here? No. Cur cur curtain twitchers are, are, are those who, uh, you know, they'll have the neighborhood watch sticker in their window and they're always kind of, oh, who, who's that parking outside of? What, what's that noise? Is, is, is that a coyote or a strange dog? What is that? You know, they're, they're the curtain twitchers. They're always kind of twitching at the curtains and, and having a look outside to see what's going on. Well, the nation of Israel were a nation of curtain twitchers at that time because what would happen is that God would meet with Moses in the tent of meeting. And 
God would come and enter into the tent and the nation would watch in wonderment as Moses got to speak with God face to face in a way that they simply didn't. That they who were scared, and rightly so of the glory of God, that God chose to speak through his prophet Moses there at that time. And it was in that context that Moses says, show me your glory. I need to see more of you. And that passage is crucial for understanding much of Old Testament um, imagery. And I think it would, it would benefit us to turn now to Exodus 34. It, it's such a foundational passage for us to understand the entirety of Scripture. I've heard one scholar say um, that... The entire book of Psalms is an expansion of Exodus 33 and 34. Of course, there's more to the Psalms than that, but I get his point. What happens is that Moses says at the end of chapter 33 of Exodus, hopefully you're there now, in verse 18, please show me your glory. And God says in response this, he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and will proclaim before you my name, Yahweh. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And Yahweh said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hands until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. There was a sense in which Moses was able to meet with God face to face in a way that the Israelites weren't. That's a, told to us by the text. But there's another sense here, here in which Moses cannot see the face of God. He only gets to see his back. How do we explain that apparent contradiction? Well, the answer is, is, is relatively simple. That while the people of God fled from the glory of God, they were happy that God was with them, but they weren't going to have him like, you know, when he appeared before them, they were scared, as they should be, of the glory of God. But Moses was privileged to come and meet with God in that way. So the face-to-face -face is in the sense of, I will meet with you directly rather than just be with you in a general sense like I am for the rest of Israel. But there is a clarification here that while he meets with him face-to-face -face in that sense, he doesn't really see his face. That what, he's, what he's getting in those meetings is, is but a glimpse of who God is. And that when God is now going to reveal himself even more clearly to Moses, that it is in a sense, but a glimpse of his back. I know most of you fairly well. And when you come up and you see me and you, you greet me, I know immediately who you are. Some of you I know so well that when I see you walking in late to the service and I'm on the back row and I only see your back, I can still recognize who it is from your back. But you've got to know someone a lot better to know them from their back, right? 
So Moses is going to get to see more of God than he's ever seen before. And yet it's just a bit of his back. But what's even more interesting in this passage, and which we need to focus on, is this. That Moses asks to see what? Moses asks to see his glory. And God is, is, is kind of responding by saying, Yes, I'll show you my goodness and proclaim my name. Do you see that? I'll show you my... I want, you to, I want to see your glory. Okay, you'll get that. You'll see my goodness as I proclaim my name. And what we see in chapter 33, and even more so when this plays out in chapter 34, is that there are three things here that are pretty much synonymous. God's glory, God's goodness, and God's name. His glory and his goodness, and perhaps more broadly, his character, who he is, and his name. And that's because the name of God is not simply his, what we might call, appellation. His, his, the, 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 the thing that you refer to him with. You know, like we have our names. So when you say, oh, I spoke to Anthony the other day, you, you know, like you, you know who that person is talking about me because that's my name and what have you. And then occasionally in churches you get two people who have the same name and confusion arises on occasion. Which one is it that you've spoken to? Occasionally, some people come along with two names, and that really confuses everybody. But, but the reality is, is that in the Bible, names are far more important. Your name is not just how people refer to you. Your name is who you are. That's why Abram had his name changed to Abraham. It's why Jacob had his name changed to Israel. It's why God said, you will call this child this name. Because names matter. And the name of God, Yahweh, I am that I am, is a declaration of God's character, of who he is, of his attributes, of his eternal glory. And so the name of God is not just simply the letters that represent so you know who you're talking about and what have you. It's his character. It's who he is. It's his goodness, it's his mercy, it's his righteousness, it's his majesty, it's his sovereignty, that all of these things are contained within his name. And it is who he is that is his glory. And so you can see how those things are connected. That when we come to know who God is, then we are coming to know his name better. And we are seeing more of his glory. His character, his glory, and his name are connected. And so it is that Moses is going to see more of who God is, and he's going to get to know him better. But he can't see God. Not fully, not completely. Why? Because he'll die if he does. And so he gets a glimpse of his back. And he is protected by a rock. The astute amongst you will know that that is a reference ultimately to Christ. It is a shadow of the one who is to come. And by the way, and I could get distracted here, so apologies in advance, because we're getting further and further from Daniel. But this passage 
is the entire background of the prologue of John's Gospel. But John makes numerous allusions to this passage. Because what happens is that the Word who was in the beginning with God, distinct from the Father, and yet who himself was God, one with the Father, that that one became flesh, and then John says, and we beheld his glory. We beheld his glory, the one who is full of grace and truth. And the Greek words for grace and truth are the representation of the Hebrew words that we're going to see here in a moment in chapter 34. In other words, Moses got to see God's glory, but we beheld his glory, the one who is full of grace and truth. How is it that they saw the fullness of grace and truth in Jesus Christ incarnate? Was it on the Mount of Transfiguration when he who tabernacled amongst them had that covering removed briefly and they saw him in all his glory? Oh, absolutely not. Because John, one of only three who were there to see it, doesn't even mention it in his gospel. Isn't that strange that John, who was there and wrote a gospel, and one of the main themes of his gospel is glory, doesn't actually mention the unveiling of the glory of Christ in his gospel. Why is that? Because for John, Exodus 33 and 34, God's glory is his name, is his character. And where do we see the glory of Jesus most clearly? Where we see his character most clearly. And where do we see his character most clearly? the declaration of his deity most clearly, because everything that God was, he was. Everything that the Father was in character, he was. That he was not almost as graceful, almost as truthful, but he was full of grace and truth. That's a declaration of deity right there. Where do we see it the most? At the cross. Hence, John's statement that at the time of his betrayal, when the man of darkness goes out into the darkness to commit the deeds of darkness, and Judas goes out into the night. What is it that John says at that time? Or rather what Jesus says in the Gospel of John? He says, now the time has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. That's where glory is seen. Glory is seen upon the cross. And so in Exodus 33, where we are, we come into chapter 34. And as we come in, this is fulfilled. And Moses has the uh, stone tablets cut again to replace those, um, those uh, that were broken previously. And then in verse 5, Yahweh descends in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of Yahweh. So notice again, God says he's going to show his glory, and he now reveals his glory, and it is in the proclamation of his name. Yahweh passed before him and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, 
forgiving iniquity, transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, the children's children, to the third and fourth generation, which is part of the Mosaic promise to Israel. Now, this is a declaration of his name. The name is repeated three, four times. And it is a declaration of his character. And he says there that he is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And those Hebrew words are represented in the Greek by what John 1.14 says is grace and truth. In other words, Yahweh revealed to Moses is abounding in this. And John, in John 1.14, says Jesus is full of it. There is no greater expression of grace and truth than is found in Jesus Christ. None at all. Which is why that, again, is a declaration of deity. And so Moses gets to see who God is in his name, in his glory, in his character, more than anybody else has ever seen. And he descends down from the mountain, and when he goes back down and renews the covenant, he goes, and having been with God, as we know, his shines, his face shines. Exodus 34, verse 29. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, but they were afraid to come near him. Now listen, we, most of you know the remainder. He puts a veil on his face. Paul works with that analogy in 2 Corinthians when he talks about us with unveiled faces and so on and so forth. But I want us to get, this is what I'm trying to get to, what I want us to understand. Moses spent time with God. Moses spent time with God. And because he spent time with God, he shone, and there was brightness on his face. Now, this happened in Exodus 34. So I don't want us to have a very shallow understanding of Scripture and just say, well, Moses went to be with God, and so he was there with God, and his face shone. Because that's not the point of Exodus 34. The point of Exodus 34 is Moses got to see God better. And that isn't just a case of some mystical experience and God's glory shining and he was shining and he kind of got shone on and, you know, he, he, it was like he had, he had sunburn or something. You know, you spend too long in the sun and then your skin gets all red and, you know, you, you come back with sunburn. And that's, I think, how most Christians understand it. But, but, but rather than that, what's going on is that, is that Moses got to see the character of God more clearly and as such, he shone with the glory of God as he came from being with God. Now that, I believe, is echoed in the book of Daniel. Let's go back to the book of Daniel. So when we're talking about those who were resurrected, they slept in the dust of the earth, they shall awake some to everlasting life. It's the everlasting life ones as opposed to the everlasting condemnation, which we focused more on last time. It is the everlasting life that is focused on in verse 3. They're wise and they shall shine 
like the brightness of the sky above. So the shining of the resurrected ones is the first thing mentioned. Keep in mind Exodus 34. And secondly, those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. So with the stars we have shining again. Whenever star is used symbolically in scripture, and it may or may not be here, but it's possible, but whenever it is used symbolically, it refers to angels. And so there may be an angelic reference here. Michael's in the context, so that's perfectly possible. Michael is the one, is the one who is being referenced, and there is, of course, an angel who is speaking to him. So it's possible that he's not being told that we will become angels, but rather that we will shine like them. And in two ways we will be like the angels. One is that we, like them, will shine and reflect the glory of God. When angels turn up in scripture, they're often referred to as shining. Like Moses, they were in the presence of God, and they shine when they leave the presence of God. But secondly, they shine forever and ever. There is an eternality to the resurrection of the saints. Now, we need to see that what Daniel is emphasizing here in the resurrection is he's emphasizing a shining and he's emphasizing an eternality. Now, it's with that in mind and the echo of Exodus 34 that I want us to turn to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, as you're just turning there, is a passage that we always go to with reference to resurrection. It is the fullest expression and understanding of resurrection that we have in the Bible, at least from a theological perspective. And again, we're on a mission here to rid people of the false notion that somehow when we as Christians die, we go to heaven disembodied, and that's where we spend eternity. The Bible knows nothing of such nonsense. Yes, when we die, we go to heaven. Yes, when we die, we leave our body behind. But that is not our eternal state. Paul makes this abundantly clear here in this passage. So I'm reading from 1 Corinthians 15, and I'm reading from verse 50. Verse 50. I tell you this, brothers, and that should be brothers and sisters, ladies, you're included as well. It's not just a male-only resurrection, of course. I tell you, brothers and sisters, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable, right? So there is a kingdom, and the problem with this kingdom is that the kingdom cannot be inherited by flesh and blood. And and the reason for that is given in the text, and the reason is, is that it is, flesh and blood is perishable. It's perishable. And the kingdom is eternal. So, you know, if, if someone said to me, as I am now, Hey, Anthony, you, as you are, flesh and blood, get to go into the kingdom of God forever. I'm looking at the rate that my body's aged over the last 10 years, and I'm thinking I'm not going to be enjoying this kingdom much in another 100 years. I mean, that's just kind of, that's my take on it at this point. So, so that's what he's speaking of there. The, the, the kingdom can only be inherited 
by that which is imperishable. Now, now, up to this point, if you take this verse and you remove it from its context, which of course Christians are very fond of doing, then we can have a kingdom of God that is purely spiritual and, and that it has no physical component because, hey, look, no flesh and blood, imperishable. We have an eternal kingdom that's us in heaven without a body. But Paul does not allow for that. It says in verse 51, Behold, I tell you a mystery. Now, regulars will know what he means here, that whenever he mentions the word mystery, he's speaking not of anything to do with Scooby-Doo, there's no Nancy Drew or anything like that going on at this point, but rather that the word mystery is a technical term, which you will remember he gets from Daniel chapter 2 and elsewhere in Daniel. It is a technical term to refer to something that was previously unrevealed. And particularly when Paul uses it in the New Testament, he's speaking about elements of revelation that were uniquely given to him that these readers wouldn't have been able to gather from previous revelation, most specifically the Old Testament. And that makes it fascinating. And by the way, that's a great study to do. Go through Paul's writings and look at every single time he uses the word mystery and see what it is that he refers to. It's a fascinating study. And uh, I could give you some examples, but I won't because we'll get distracted. Anyway, um, I'm distracted enough today as it is, but in lots of different passages. So here is the mystery. The mystery is this. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. So there is, there is something here that is being made clear that hasn't been made clear before, which is that at the moment of transformation... When we're changed, in that moment, in that twinkling of an eye, we will not sleep, but we will all be changed. So there is a moment when there are those who will not sleep, but will be changed. Now Paul uses the expression routinely of falling asleep to refer to Christians who have physically died. He doesn't like to use the word death to refer to dying. Not for Christians. You, you know why? Because we're not experiencing death. We're not experiencing eternal death. Death for a Christian is very, very different than death for a non-Christian. Death ultimately refers to separation from God. As Christians, we will never be separated from God. So Paul prefers to use the terminology of falling asleep to refer to Christians who have physically died. And he's saying here, not all, not all of you are going to die. Not every Christian will die. There will come a moment of transformation, and at that moment of transformation, some will still be alive. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will, will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. Do you see at this point... Now we get to verse 52 of 1 Corinthians 15. That what we're seeing is that verse 50 cannot be isolated and taken out of context to mean that we will eternally be in heaven without a body. Because what he's saying is, in fact, at the moment of, of that blowing of the trumpet, there will be a transformation both for those who are alive and those who've already died. There will be a transformation and we will be transformed and raised, those of us who have died, from the dead 
and we will be raised imperishable. Now, this is the consistent teaching of the Bible. That there is a resurrection of the saints. Every Christian who dies will be resurrected. That Christ is our first fruits. And Paul makes this clear. He makes it clear as we go through this, his, this chapter of, of 1 Corinthians. He makes it clear that Christ is the first fruit of resurrection and that we will also be resurrected. To, to say, well, Christ was literally resurrected, but our resurrection is just symbolic, that we're not actually literally going to have bodies, is to deny the resurrection of Christ. At least with those stinking so-called liberal Christian scholars, although I don't really think there's much Christian about them at all, that would deny a physical resurrection of Jesus, at least they're being consistent. I'll give them that. They don't believe that Jesus was literally resurrected from the dead, which is why I don't think they're Christians. And then they don't think that we're going to be literally resurrected from the dead. There's a consistency there. What makes no sense to me is those Christians who say, well, of course Jesus was literally physically resurrected from the dead, but yet somehow don't believe that they will be. That makes no sense at all. Because he is the first fruit of our resurrection. But when we are raised from the dead, we are raised from the dead and given bodies that are imperishable. And for those of us who look in the mirror and start to see the inevitable signs of aging, for those of us who don't move as swiftly, lift as strongly as we used to, there is great encouragement, is there not? That the time will come when the bodies that we will inhabit will be imperishable. They won't age, they won't break. It won't come to an end. Looking forward to seeing what some of you look like as young, mature adults in full health. How is God going to do this? He says in verse 53, For this imperishable body must put on the imperishable. Context, remember verse 50, to inherit the kingdom. And this mortal body must put on immortality. This is part of the reason, by the way, you know, in addition to the hundreds of prophecies in the Old Testament that haven't been yet fulfilled, that we believe that there is going to be a physical kingdom of God where we will physically inhabit on a physical earth because our bodies are going to be raised to that very purpose. And he says, when the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written. And many of you read this verse with us in its original context as we talked through Isaiah a few years ago. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Aren't they the most glorious words do you know, it, one of the strangest emotional places we can ever be is at the funeral of a Christian. 
Did e'er such love and sorrow meet? Isaac Watts said about the cross. Well, there's a similar meeting of love and sorrow at a funeral, isn't there? Of joy and sorrow, of the tears of farewell to one who has left us, and yet the joy knowing that they are in a much, much better place, that they have gone to be with Christ. And yet, they have not yet received their immortal, imperishable bodies. Why? Because we know when that happens, that happens in a moment, and some will still be alive. And when those who are alive are taken to receive their transformation and the perishable becomes imperishable, then those who've been asleep previously, it is at that time that they too will receive their imperishable bodies. So yes, we get to go to be with Christ in heaven. And yes, we get to be there in a sort of disembodied state, as it were. But that is not our final abode that there is this resurrection that will come and we will be resurrected into bodies that will no longer die. The bodies that will no longer fade, that will no longer rot, that will no longer perish. How is that possible? Verse 56. The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is in the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the reason that our bodies die is because our bodies are contaminated with sin. Not as a contamination that we can somehow do some sort of a detox or cleanse, make ourselves better, get rid of the sin in our lives by following various steps and programs, but that the sin that is in our bodies is hardwired into every single cell of our body. People today sometimes think that if they can prove that a certain type of behavior is, can, can be linked to our DNA, that somehow that resolves us of responsibility. What a load of nonsense. I have no illusion to the fact that in my unique DNA, there's all kinds of sins that I am therefore more prone to, but I am still accountable for. And it is because there is sin in our bodies that our bodies, our mortal bodies, gradually perish day by day. And why we will one day fall asleep. And one day our bodies will be no more. And it's because these bodies are sinful that they cannot inherit the kingdom of God. And yet there will be a kingdom, and there will be a king on the throne in that kingdom, and we will physically be there in that physical kingdom, and we shall worship him in that kingdom, and we shall do so, and as we lift our hands in praise, they will be physical hands, and they will be uniquely ours, and in some way, shape, or form, they will still be my hands with my DNA, but yet they won't be the same DNA in exactly the same way, because they will no longer be contaminated by any of the sins that contaminate me today, and I will shine... In brightness, as Moses shined in brightness. And as we pull all of this that we've looked at together today, and we look at the resurrection of the saints, I want us to be clear about this. Two things. Number one, when we are resurrected, we shall be without sin. There will be no more struggle. There will be no more fight. There will be no more failure. 
Most of the time, we don't think about breathing. We just kind of do it. Thank goodness for that, because we spend a lot of our time sleeping. And if we had to consciously think to breathe, we'd be in all sorts of trouble asleep. But we unconsciously breathe. Sometimes I feel that our sin is as unconscious as our breathing. Sometimes I wish that I could just cut out every piece of sin within me, but I'm not naive enough to know that I'd even know where to look. Many of us have been blessed with spouses who have a better eye for seeing our sin than we do ourselves. <laughs> One of the gifts of marriage. But what a day it will be when there's nothing left to cut out. What a day it will be when those unconscious breaths of life are pure. When we never have to consciously be concerned at sinning ever again. Where we couldn't if we tried. Where we couldn't if we wanted to. And where we couldn't want to. What a glorious day. And the second thing, and the second almost as glorious thing, is that in our resurrected state we will shine, which in the context of the echoes of Exodus 33 and 34 means that we will know God so much better. We will see him so much more clearly. And the saddest thing of all is some of us don't realize why that's almost as good a thing. That our understanding of God is so limited by our constant sin. I was saying last time when we focus more on the resurrection unto death rather as opposed to the resurrection unto life. And we looked at Revelation 20 and what have you. And we looked at people being resurrected purely to be cast into the lake of fire. And I said that many in the church today try and get rid of that doctrine because they find it offensive. And we don't realize what a statement we're making. We're saying, well, the Bible says that God will do this, but I can't accept that God would ever do this because I would never do this. And we're putting ourselves above God that somehow our righteous judgment is better than his. Except, of course, we don't say that because we, we turn it around and say, oh, but he would never do such a thing, which is why I can't possibly under, you know, but interpret the passage that way. In other words, I'm just going to remove that from my Bible because I cannot worship a God that would do that because I wouldn't do that. And in the very act of doing that, we place ourselves above God. And our own sin clouds our mind as to the seriousness of sin. Those of us who've been going through Romans in Wednesday, on Wednesdays, we have the lady study at 10 a.m. and the men at 7 p.m. and we've been going simultaneously through the book of Romans. And we just saw this last week, how the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. Notice the from heaven reference in Revelation 20. Fire comes from heaven to destroy the armies of, the, of Satan. But, but um, wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness, which we suppress the truth in our unrighteousness. 
That verse goes on to say, or that section goes on to say. In other words, people are unrighteous. They know that there is a God. They know that he is holy. They know that he is powerful. They know they must obey him. And yet, they don't know that practically because they've taken that truth that is evident to them and they suppress it with their unrighteousness. Our sin suppresses our ability to understand what is true. Has there ever been a generation where that is more true than now? I see Christians trying to show how, how nuanced and kind of compassionate they are by, by uh, you know, not condemning Planned Parenthood. Just like the Israelites that allowed their sons and daughters to walk through the fire in worship of Molech. We, we belittle things. We don't call sin, sin. We don't think it's serious. We, we, we treat sin lightly. And so when we see the judgment of God against sin, we, we oh, oh, that doesn't feel right, doesn't it? I don't, I'm not sure I believe in a God that would do that. Our sin corrupts our understanding of a holy God. But when we're resurrected, when we are imperishable, we will shine like Moses shone when he saw God more clearly. Every week at this church, we have Q&As. People come and say, what about this? What does the Bible say about that? Won't be getting many Q&As in those days, will we? We will see him, and we will see his glory, and we will know him. What a glorious, glorious time that will be. And so it is that as we come to an end of this section in Daniel, Daniel, back to Daniel 12, he closes the section, we'll deal with this briefly in verse 4, where the angel who's been speaking for this last chapter and a half says, but you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. In other words, there are things that are being said here that won't be revealed at this at this time, there is a shutting up and a sealing, a closing of the book. We have gone through the book of Daniel. We're now at the end of it. Daniel came over as perhaps even just a teenager, a young man, taken from his family and his friends and his country and his God in the first wave of the Babylonian captivity. He was castrated and made into a eunuch and trained up at the University of Babylon. And within the first few years, immediately because of his faithfulness, God uses Daniel and speaks to him in dreams and visions. And God uses those dreams and visions throughout the life of Daniel. And here he is at the end in this final prophecy. The angel speaking to him. Just think how long that is. 70 years of captivity and Daniel's been there the whole time. Receiving dreams and visions. And now the angel says, and now that time is over. The time of dreams, the time of visions, the time of what you've been shown, that's now come to an end. And so it is sealed up. It is preserved. And that preservation of those visions is what we have before us in the uh, book of Daniel. It was closed. It's very interesting to see the contrast in the book of Revelation where John is specifically told not to seal the book. Daniel has to seal it because 
that you know th this stuff you can file away because there's a time coming where when this is going to have to happen again and with John it, it does John is the one who who is able to fill in the gaps that Daniel had and it's to do with those gaps and that knowledge that is referenced at the end of verse 4 where it says many shall run to and fro and that is an idiom in Hebrew for a quest for knowledge you see that elsewhere second Chronicles 16 one of the most famous references but also Jeremiah 5 Amos 8 Zechariah 4 you'll see the same idiom of people running to and fro and it's to do with a quest for knowledge and he says that though Daniel must seal this others shall run to and fro and the knowledge shall increase and that's essentially what John does in the book of Revelation and we've seen last week and this and other times the many links and allusions to Daniel in the book of Revelation in the book of Matthew and elsewhere as the gaps are filled in and so with verse 4 with the resurrection Daniel's prophecies come to an end and boy what a journey it's been and next time we'll come and we'll finish the book of Daniel we'll see what the angel says or what Daniel says as he uh, as he as he leaves the angel and he closes and there are some final words uh, concerning the last times that we deal with at the very very end which we shall and then we shall come to the end of Daniel but as we go away may we go shining with the truth that we have seen today shining with the what we have seen of God may it rest upon us and stay within us friends one day these frail human bodies will come to an end but the day is coming when in the moment in a twinkling of an eye we shall be resurrected no sin and no more limitations on understanding and knowing God and by the way don't misinterpret me to understand me to be saying that in that moment when we're resurrected we will know everything that we can about God no 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 what I'm saying is there will be no hindrance to us learning about God but I think that God is so unfathomable that we shall spend eternity learning ever more about him but at last there shall be no hindrance in that quest for knowing let's pray father we thank you for your word and we thank you for that glorious promise of future resurrection I thank you that there will be a new heaven and a new earth and I thank you that we will get to enjoy it to taste its food to lift our hands in worship to speak praise with our tongues and that we will be able to express a pure unadulterated type of worship when our bodies are free from the sin that so easily entangles us as we come to worship you again now to close out our service though our worship is imperfect though our bodies are still tainted and corrupted and made perishable by sin May our worship be in spirit and truth, and may it be pleasing in your sight. Amen.